Hello and welcome to the Sunday Salon, the podcast that celebrates brilliant books and the women who write them. My guest this week is Pandora Sykes, whose collection of essays, How Do We Know We're Doing It Right? Essays on Modern Life, is a thought-provoking and insightful dissection of contemporary fads and foibles, from wellness and self-optimization to our urge to appear authentic, even when doing so is quite superficial. I found her totally fascinating to speak to, as an early adopter of Instagram while working as a fashion journalist, and, of course, the co-host of the phenomenally successful The High Low podcast, she's had to get used to putting herself out there, being public-facing, and being scrutinised for better or worse by the entire internet. And some of the internet is really quite mad, as she reveals. We discussed that, as well as her identity struggles when she became a mother, how and when she writes, it's often in the small hours, and what, as someone who's highly sensitive, it's like to be publishing your thoughts and opinions in book form. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Pandora, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the Sunday Salon. I'm, I'm so excited to speak to you. Thank you so much, Alice. It's uh, great to be able to chat and in, a, and in a professional guise. We can pretend it's for professional reasons. <laughs> well, quite. Um, and as you know, I've got a lot that I want to ask you about. But before I do, uh, I wonder if you could just describe for me the concept behind how do we know we're doing it right, essays on modern life. How would you sum it up, I suppose? So they were all things that I really wanted to write about, but it wasn't till I kind of put them together as ideas and started playing around with what the commonalities might be that I realised that there were some themes that were coming across in all the essays, which is this idea of the paradox of choice, that no choice at all um, is unbearable, but too much of it can also be addling. The idea that we are subconsciously or consciously looking for a seamless, polished, friction-free life. And the idea that amidst this endless choice, it becomes harder to know if you are making the right decision. And so what I was seeing a lot of is people feeling like they just weren't sure if they were doing life right, which... I think, spoiler alert, is a zero-sum goal. I don't think you can get life right or wrong. I think it's much more complicated than that. And so I suppose the book is a sort of delve into those complications, those trivialities and myths and anxieties. And I think you've done that very well. And there's a lot there that I want to explore a little further with you later on. Uh, Before I do, I wonder if I can ask a little bit of background. What were you like as a child had you always wanted to write I've always loved writing Uh, I love drawing as well so I would just be at a little desk in my dad's study writing stories and drawing pictures and I spent a lot of time reading on my own as well I'm the youngest of four but there's quite big age gaps so I was sort of left to my own devices which I love and I'm kind of similar now I could very easily spend a whole weekend on my own reading and moving the furniture around in my bedroom which is also what I love doing age five so probably not hugely dissimilar in terms of my of my process um now as to when I was aged eight I did I did discover a load of exercise books the other day in this little desk because I want to uh, repaint it for my daughter and I had also done a lot of making myself very easy maths tests so that I could get them right and then write brilliant work Pandora (laughs) <laughs> and 
can you tell me a little bit about your path into writing? Because you ha- actually have qu- quite an un- unusual background. You write about it a little bit in the book, and you don't tend to focus so much on on fashion. But you did have this early job at a quite uh, unusual website today. I'm wearing where you'd post pictures of your outfits much to the bafflement of other people and now of course this is quite a quite a a common thing to do um can you tell me how that came about what what was your sort of path into that and then how did that shift more towards writing I don't think I have a particularly linear or um usual path into where I am now in that quite often you know you do an internship then you get an assistant role, a junior editor role, an editor role, and so on up. Whereas I jumped around in quite a lot of mediums and I uh, was very enthusiastic to sort of take on as many different types of work as possible. So I think I was more kind of pinballing my way through, but in a way that seemed to work and seemed to offer lots of kind of new adventures. So at the beginning, I did I did a bunch of internships at magazines. I mean, I was lucky; mine were paid. I think they now all have to be paid a London living wage. Uh, but I know that sometimes you can be interning for a very long time without being paid. But I was lucky; I did paid ones at various magazines, including In Style, um, which is obviously now defunct, and GQ, um, where I would write about sort of helicopter hybrids and you know do very different stuff to what I was doing at InStyle but neither of those were fashion I was features at InStyle and I was uh, features at GQ and then an opportunity came up for a website called Today I'm Wearing which was a fashion sharing website run by the Daily Mail and I think this is where my advice on always emailing comes from because I had been emailing the then editor of You magazine, Sue Pert, for three, four years, ever since I was 14. Sometimes she'd reply, sometimes she wouldn't. And that was kind of very much the same with every magazine I worked for. I had been, you know, writing to them since I was 14 and they would always say, if they replied, we don't do work experience until you're 18, get back in touch. Anyway, when the Daily Mail editor was looking for someone to run this website, he said, I want someone really young because... (laughs) Our budgets are very low. They don't have to have experience. <laughs> they just have to be a quick learner and kind of enthusiastic. And she said, well, I've got this girl that is always emailing me. Why don't you give her a try? So I learned, I was there for a year and it was the most incredible learning opportunity because it had the scaffolding of the Daily Mail. So I worked in that office on this website. I had two writers beneath me. So I learned about managing. I was completely involved with the setting up of the website, all of the kind of back-end SEO stuff. You know, I'd sit in meetings with just men and explain to them that the purple and turquoise theme looked a little bit like an always packet. And they would say, well, what's an always packet? And I'd be like, sanitary. This looks like sanitary care, which is what (laughs) so many websites looked like 10 years ago, I think. And um, it ultimately, you know, folded. It didn't really, it didn't really get off the ground. But what was very interesting about it is that it was at the time that Instagram, not was created because I think Instagram took a little bit of time for people to actually use it. But it was at the time where people were starting to use it. So I got on to Instagram sharing my outfits to promote the website. That was the first fashion stuff that I did. And the lovely thing about the website is you could only heart things you can only send them up you can send anything down and then we'd also write editorial alongside it you know about themes we'd seen on the website 
And when that folded, I then went to another now defunct website called The Debrief, which was Grazia's little sister website. And again, mm, just had... I remember it. Just had such an intensive year of learning there because I was the fashion editor there and I would have to write four stories a day for the website, which is a lot of content. And I was also commissioning mm-hmm. other people and I was editing. And that was when I suppose I started to share more about my own style or put my own self kind of, you know, that was more centered in in my writing or in my work because the editor came up with something called changing room selfies, which I think is actually still quite a good idea where I would go to a shop and I would try on sort of everything they had. And then I would share six outfits from the changing room, a sort of inspiration of what's in the shops and what you could buy from that particular shop. And then I was headhunted there to go and work at the Sunday Times as the fashion features editor. And and that was a big jump. I'd done it. I'd done a lot of freelancing in my time as well. I was always in the back, whatever job I had, I was always also writing for company or Cosmo or, you know, any or Man Repeller, anywhere that I could sort of write. And I also had my own blog, which I was very diligent about updating, which was just social commentary, but then I added fashion. So I think it was at a time where lots of new platforms were coming up and therefore I was able to jump you know I I would I don't think I'd have got that job at Sunday Time Style unless I'd had a blog I think they were looking for something specific and I was just very lucky that at that point I was doing various things that they thought would be interesting so I went there when I was 26 uh, or 27 I can't quite remember and then I was there for three years um, and I left there three years ago to yeah pivot away from fashion again and I don't do any fashion currently, but that's not to say I never will again. Just a few things you said there that were quite fascinating um, that I, I'd like to ask you more about. So you, age 14, were writing off to magazine editors, and you also clearly had this blog. You said you sort of pinballed around, but those are quite strategic moves to have. Were you very focused as a teenager on making a career in writing, or were you specifically wanting to sort of work in magazines where did you get that determination and drive from I actually don't think it was strategic I think the only strategic thing I've ever done actually probably was writing this book everything else was a series of happy coincidences and I say that just because I was always quite open you know I didn't necessarily want to work in fashion but I did love clothes and I've always been very creative so Mm. I saw that as a good opportunity but I wanted to write anywhere that would have me uh, when I was mm. younger. It didn't matter if it was magazines. It didn't matter if it was newspapers. It mm. didn't matter if it was a website. Um, but, you know, maybe I'd have tried to write a book. I was quite interested in screenwriting for a while. I took a, a gap mm. year in between school and university and I went and did a screenwriting course at Yale. Um, I think screenwriting is very difficult and I don't know how good I'd be at it. But I very much enjoyed doing that. So I think... And this is what I say to people now who ask advice, which I always feel so poorly equipped to give because I think that I I don't think it's been strategic and I think it's a load of happy coincidences. But the advice I now give is just be really open about the platforms and places that you will work. And I I have always been a very hard worker. That's true. In terms of determination, I think that probably comes from my dad. 
he is a very hard worker and we we both probably a little bit to our detriment we're both a bit obsessive maybe about work you also write that you're highly sensitive and I'm interested to know what that's like when you I suppose do put yourself in those fashion stories as you did at the debrief and when you were posting pictures of yourself and the way that sort of opens you up to the whole whole internet I can imagine that had its downsides as well particularly if you're sensitive can you tell me how you squared those I think I'm much more aware of what I put out there now than I was in my mid-20s when it was all quite new and exciting you know when Instagram first came along nobody thought about the ramifications of sharing we certainly Mm. didn't talk about data collection or surveillance culture and I didn't think for a second that there might be any downside to sharing pictures of myself on Instagram, God, probably near daily. Honestly, I don't know where I found the time. Actually, I know where I found the time. I didn't have children. That's probably where I found the time. <laughs> but I, um, the answer is I wasn't cautious about it then. I am cautious about it now. And I am much more careful about what I put out there. In terms of sensitivity, yeah, it's not the ideal job for someone really sensitive. Um, I think just like anyone that is putting content out into the public arena at the moment I'm just trying to cultivate resilience daily and Mm. be sensitive in places where it's beneficial like I think most writers are sensitive aren't they you have to be porous to absorb the world around you Mm. Mm. You, you mentioned um going on to Sunday time style where you you wrote the wardrobe mistress uh column and Around that time, people started asking you if they were getting it right, style-wise, which is, of course, as we've discussed, one of the big themes of the book. Was that the first time that you were aware of the idea of kind of, I suppose, abiding by certain rules of living? And, And did that place a big responsibility on you when you were writing that column? I mean, what is it? What is it like when people are, I suppose, treating you as some kind of oracle? That column, I think, was such an invaluable experience. Actually, do you know what? I'd say there's one thing in common with all the jobs that I did in my 20s is that all of them had a strong component of listener or reader feedback. Uh, Mm. You know, that Today I'm Wearing was about our readers. The debrief was about our readers. And by that, I mean there was a direct dialogue always happening with us and it was the same with the Sunday Time style you know that was the only job on the magazine where I was speaking directly to the people reading us so I would get 40-50 emails a week from people who were 14 people who were in their 60s um, and I got such an interesting insight into womanhood I think like the real breadth of it in a way that I probably wouldn't have got if I worked on another fashion magazine because the whole point of that page is it was meant to be I hate the term real woman but that it was meant to be like the real woman page you know it was meant to be filling a gap plugging a hole um so I didn't feel pressure to um kind of give the right advice I was very interested in how many people found it so overwhelming because clothes to me have always been something joyful and fun it's it's I've never felt like I had to subscribe to someone else's visual idea of me um 
And I now understand that that's quite a privilege because for a lot of people, it's stressful. It's stressful mm-hmm. trying to get dressed. It's stressful trying to put things together in a way that, you know, means you're not laughed at or that you fit in or that you look professional or that you look sexy on a date or as a lot of people would write to me that you don't look like the tragic mother-in-law at a wedding. You know, there are so many more anxieties for women about getting dressed than there are for men. And, And a lot of the time, I think it comes from bodies because there is so much emphasis on a woman's body that clothes become the way to sort of best defend herself um, against the world. So it wasn't so much as a pressure as much as it was a really riveting insight, I think. And it was while you were at Sunday Time Star that you started doing the what was the Pandoli podcast. That was really early days in terms of podcasting. Now, of course, you've got the phenomenally successful Hilo, which is just, I mean, it's just absolutely massive. And it's it's just really quite incredible what you guys have done with that what made you kind of go into podcasting and how important has that become now to your I suppose your career and and your life because of course it's quite different from writing but I imagine in terms of your own I suppose personal brand for want of a better phrase it's it's pretty key we approached the Pandoli podcast I suppose quite um definitely naively and quite cavalierly I don't know if that's a word it is now but but very (laughs) enthusiastically it I I wanted to do something that wasn't fashion I always wrote about stuff that wasn't fashion when I was at the Sunday Times style Um, I wrote a bit on mental health I wrote quite a lot about social media or pop culture but the emphasis was still very much in the main on me as a fashion writer and I was slightly straining at the limitations of that. And I had never listened to a podcast, but I heard that they were cool, funky things happening. And so I just said to our editor, do you think this could be a fun thing? I I could do it with Dolly. And I knew Dolly a little bit. And she was writing a column for um, the Sunday Times Style, her dating column. And I just knew that we'd have great rapport. And also it was an excuse to be able to work with her. Um, I wasn't paid to do it. And I had to fit it into my own time. And it only lasted for five months. And it's very different to what the high-low is. But Mm. it was such a great learning curve and kind of blissfully naive experience, if I'm honest. You know, it wasn't a business. We didn't... Um, we were probably pretty ignorant, to be honest, but we um, we learned a lot from that five months. And then it meant that when I left the Sunday Times style, we set up the Hilo and we kind of had a bit of a running start because the Pandoli listeners came with us. In terms of how it's changed my work, I have always been as interested in telling the stories as writing them. I think mm-hmm. I... I have always done quite a lot of speaker work. It's just tended to be more in the background, you know, hosting panels or speaking at kind of corporate events, that kind of thing. And I've always quite enjoyed that because unlike writing, you're in and out and you can't take it back. (laughs) It's like quite an instant, um, satisfying work form. So that was always kind of running in the background for me. Um, But no, I suppose I didn't, I mean, I've just launched my third podcast which I'm doing on my own called Mm. doing it right and no I I didn't ever think that podcasts would be such a big part of my work but I think that's probably just reflective 
of um, how much I've kind of enjoyed different mediums over the years. I started writing a blog when blogs weren't a business and I started doing a podcast when podcasts weren't a business. I've always gone into those new platforms just from a place of curiosity rather than a place of wanting to build it into a business. And Mm. this is probably quite an unsatisfying answer, but Dolly and I always say that the only reason the Hilo is a success is because we never expected it to be. We didn't come Mm. to it with any business aspirations at all. Um, So it was quite organic, which sometimes the best work is when when you don't have the pressure of high expectations, you're allowed to just roll with it. Do you have the pressure of high expectations now, now that it's become, I mean, a sort of form of, I guess, podcasting mass media? I mean, do you, as you say, it's different from writing in that you can't take it back. Does that change the dynamics somewhat? We're definitely more careful what we say on the show now, and there's very little personal element. And we have a brilliant sub-editor and fact-checker called Abby, who um, also helps us with the Hilo mailbox. And she will check, she'll go through the script, she'll check all of our facts, uh, you know, just to check that I haven't got a place name wrong or a number wrong or a date, because people get very cross about things like that. Uh, So she helps us kind of on the accuracy. In terms of launching Doing It Right, that's probably the most scared I've ever been to launch anything because Mm. I knew that people would come to it with a certain expectation and I didn't have the security of doing it with Dolly. So I'm very lucky to be launching a podcast having already got a podcast because obviously that really helps with listeners. But equally, I think it can bring quite high expectations. And I think the more listeners you have, the more aware you are that, you're always going to be letting someone down. And that's definitely something that I struggle with, uh, existing very much within review culture and the feedback loop. That's something that I do find a bit difficult. Do you get nervous? And you also do a lot of public speaking. Do you find do you find those sorts of things nerve-wracking? I don't find public speaking nerve-wracking. Podcasting, yes. I'm just really worried about saying something stupid or thoughtless, uh, because we're not living in a time at the moment where those things can be easily forgotten. And don't get me wrong, I think uh, holding people to account is really important. But equally, everything is quite flammable at the moment. And so it's quite a scary time to make a mistake. So I get fear about podcasting, but not about something which is going to be over in half an hour and I never have to be haunted by again. <laughs> mm. Let's turn to the book. You started writing it uh, on a hot Easter Sunday. Uh, What made you start writing it? Where did the idea come from? It's certainly relatively unusual to do essays. So what was the impetus behind it? So when I said earlier that that the the book is the only thing I've ever done that's strategic, what I meant by that was I love reading essay collections. I always have but they have never been a particularly popular medium in the UK. So most of the essay collections I read were by American writers. And then we started to see essays being sold a bit more in the UK. I think that's because long read journalism became quite popular on the internet. And so that transferred quite well into essays and nonfiction essays. So it was a combination of feeling like, well, maybe this could be the right time to try an essay collection. Maybe there's an appetite for them. Um, 
and also just suddenly feeling like I had lots of ideas. I'd been asked quite a few times over the years if I was going to write a book and I'd always said, no, I just I just don't have any, you know, I don't have it in me. I'm not going to force it if it's not there. But then, which is funny actually, because the book starts there. But when I was in Mexico on holiday last January and I started thinking about the dream catchers, which then became this kind of mm. pivotal sort of tribe in in the dream catchers, my first essay. I then started thinking from there and I'd written an essay. God, I can't even remember the date. I feel like it must have been at the end of 2018. I'd written an essay called The Authentic Life for a platform mm. called The Pound Project. And um, that had done quite well. And I had quite enjoyed being able to get my teeth stuck into something that was longer than a thousand words or more than a two hour record. And I think the combination of having lots of ideas on holiday, feeling like I was seeing that essays were starting to sell a bit and having tried my hand at The Authentic Lie, which was a pretty crude essay. I rewrote it for the book. You know, it wasn't definitely wasn't my best work, but it was a really invaluable learning experience. So I think it was sort of, yeah, a collision of all of those, really. And I mean, key is this idea of sort of self-optimization and uh, the, the the kind of idea of, as you say, doing it right. Um, one of the things you explore is the wellness industry that has sprung up and, and the kind of body image pressures that we have on us. You're actually, you say you're one of the only people in your family not to have struggled with body image but I know from other uh, interviews and, and writing that you've done you also have had your fair share of I suppose interaction with people online about about body image for example after you had your daughter people sort of saying oh well you you know you've lost all the baby weight very very quickly and so on how do you tackle that kind of online scrutiny and and what was it that made you particularly want to explore that I think the scrutiny around women's bodies is mad for want of a better word um I remember being really freaked out in my second pregnancy because a friend of mine told me that if you google searched me that the first suggested search that came up was Pandora Sykes baby weight or pregnancy weight gain something like that which I just thought is the strangest thing ever generally I think as I said I'm really lucky that I don't have body image issues and I have a socially accepted body type of slim um, I have that privilege with which I move through the world um, I, I find it odious when people feel the need to comment on personal appearance I think it's not something I worry about so much now just because I don't post pictures of myself very much anymore from time to time I might but it's just not a regular occurrence so I think I've maybe managed I think when you're I think when you are working in fashion and so inevitably the the focus is on your body because it's your body wearing the clothes that can encourage a dialogue around your body but when you're not writing about something that involves your physical form Perhaps you don't have to get that commentary so much. I'm not sure. I mean, I've had some very batty 
comments over the years. When I was working at Sunday Times Style, I had to do a Facebook Live wardrobe mistress, which I hated. Mm-hmm. And um, I got some really odd, to be fair, I don't think English was their first language, but I got some really odd comments like, you don't know how to wear your face, which is my husband's favourite. Obviously, it's completely nonsensical, but um, <laughs> it's also it's also like deeply cruel because <laughs> I'm not sure what other face I could wear. If I'm honest, that kind of stuff doesn't bother me too much because that's clearly a crazy comment. I would be much more upset by something that was very personal about me rather than, you know, a part of my body. And you also write about female archetypes and, you know, that one of the the female archetypes is the kind of mother and this idea of sort of motherhood as an identity. And when you had your, your daughter, you write that you were so keen to prove that having a baby didn't mean that you changed that you gave yourself no time to adapt to the new role and it was it was almost a sort of attempt at at having it all um I was interested first of all where those pressures came from and 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 secondly how you've managed to navigate that now because one thing I do know about you is you've got quite a strict sort of structure to your working week and your working rhythms and you do put out of office replies and so on on and you are quite you very very kindly actually agreed to speak to me at a sort of anti-social time so that we can fit this around around work but generally I know you're quite good at having boundaries so I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about that and so first of all you know where the pressure to push against that 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 kind of motherhood identity came from and, and secondly how you have now navigated that I think I was just really naive, if I'm honest, about the mothering identity. I thought that I would have a child, but I didn't think that it would change me from the bottom up. And then I was naive the second time around. I assumed that I already knew what would happen when I had a child. But um, it is a whole new identity being a mother of two compared to being a mother of one. And each time, I think it was twofold. I and the primary earner and I'm freelance and ironically, but not unusually, the, the two years in which I've had my children have also been my busiest two work years. So mm-hmm. I didn't want to take very long maternity leaves. And I assumed I've had insomnia for years and I'm quite good at, I'm a bit of a sort of workhorse in that I can push myself for a very long time. So I assumed that physically I would be fine and yeah, I'd be tired, but I'd be able to push through. I didn't leave the space both with the first and the second child to um, mentally reorientate myself. And I now think that that is why maternity leaves are so important. I don't think that they are to necessarily physically recuperate, although certainly that's a large part of it. I don't think it's necessarily to bond with your baby, although certainly that's a large part of it. I think the largest part of it is for your brain to just come back down to earth and all of your identities to reform and just you have to learn an entirely new way of being and if you don't leave that psychological space which I didn't with either child then it's tremendously frazzling I have found. Um, In terms of the communal identity of motherhood I fought against that because I really hate the way socially and culturally and even physically sometimes mothers and non-mothers are divided. So that has that is something that I strive to counter in my writing, but also the way I live my life. Of course, I'm living a radically different life to someone that doesn't have two children under two. But 
I think that there are ways of bridging the gaps between us and also being compassionate to one another. Uh, what we see culturally, I think, is a lot more compassion to mothers than we do to women who are child free, either by choice or not by choice. And then I think that can be even more agonising. I mean, even the parlance around it, childless, this idea that you've lost something rather mm. than child free, like it could be a liberation. Anyway, I could wang on about that for a really long time because um, I think there's so much we could say about it. I love hanging out with other people with children. I do it a lot. I don't like the assumption that we will share all the same views and vote the same way and enjoy the same things. So I'm really interested to hear you say that I have these boundaries because I think on a surface level, I do. And as you've seen, I, I in vain put on this out of office all the time, which still largely gets ignored. But in truth, I have had a very imbalanced few years. I have worked in the last nine months, I've worked more evenings than I haven't. And I regularly work, you know, for a whole weekend, the weekend before last, I was editing a podcast for 21 hours on one weekend. So, you know, I didn't see my kids all weekend. Um, mm. So honestly, that comes again from a place of naivety. I tend to take on projects and not realize how long they'll take me, whether it's writing a book and thinking I could write the whole thing in my pregnancy, which I, and not even my whole pregnancy, sort of five, six months of my pregnancy, which meant that I was then on a book deadline where my son was six weeks old. So I was mm. breastfeeding and also trying to do 12 hour stints at my desk. Um, I don't say any of that for sympathy. I A, bought it on myself and B, I'm extremely lucky to do work that I have sought out and that I find pleasurable. But certainly I have had a lot of experience the last few years in how you can turn everything joyful into a form of work if you bash yourself around the head with enough of it. Everything, mm. everything can become a chore if you're doing it at express speed. So boundaries... Yes, I think probably superficially I've got that licked um, and maybe even rhetorically. But um, in my own life, I'm still really trying to get that balance. I, I hope for 2021, actually, I'm going to work in a different way. We'll see. I now feel a little bit guilty for persuading you to do this early in the morning. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Do, um, not feel, but... do not feel guilty at all. I don't count this <laughs> I don't count this as work. This is this is this is great. Maybe this is your problem, Pandora. Maybe you should count this as work. <laughs> okay, I want to ask you a little bit about your writing um, routines and style. But before I do, just one more kind of uh, sort of book theme related question. Slightly refers back to to something you said earlier about this being a, a flammable time. One of the things you explore is, is the sort of the need, I suppose, for us to have a stance, to have the right stance. And, you know, sometimes where we lack knowledge, you, you rightly point out, and it's a very good observation, where we lack knowledge, we sort of fill it in with the opinion of someone we think we're going to agree with. And you're very self-deprecating and, and you refer often to your own privilege both in the book and in fact in this in this interview you have done so several times you say things like you know I'm very lucky to have a nice job so I should it feels a bit much to complain about it type thing do you feel as someone who has quite a lot of their life online both podcasts or social media whatever and I suppose you know their, their words and thoughts being published do you feel on edge that you're going to put your foot in it and how do you try and 
I suppose, do you police yourself to make sure you're saying that the right thing? Do you feel that you have to insert disclaimers into everything you say um, in case you do put your foot in it? I think of them less as disclaimers and more as necessary context. I think a lot of the conversations we've been having in the last few years is that voices like mine are very common in the media, you know, white, straight, middle class. And that was why I never wanted to write personal essays. There's a personal element to the essays, but there's also a lot of other views and experiences Mm. in there. And I think what... I think what I'm keen to do is less to censor myself as to be careful. And I don't get that right all the time. I'm constantly being told that I haven't got that right. But I do think that anyone now working in the media who is from a sort of conventionally media-y background has an obligation to always be thinking about how their lived experience might not be the lived experience of everyone else and that is I mean the one of the most interesting places where I found that actually was with burnout because we were talking a Mm. lot about burnout I was reading about it in every single magazine I picked up and there's a brilliant piece on BuzzFeed about um black burnout about inherited burnout and about how perhaps the reason why we're suddenly talking about burnout as a new thing is just because white middle class people haven't experienced it before but that doesn't Mm. mean other communities haven't And I think when you add that to a conversation, it is so much more, for starters, it's more interesting, but it's just so much more helpful. And as I get older, actually not as I get older, I have always felt like this, even when I was doing fashion, so in a very different way, I really want there to be genuine utility to my work. I want there to be something useful. Sure, there's probably a lot of daft, silly stuff in there as well, but I I, I want to be adding... I want to be adding something positive and I want to be trying to add add something nuanced. So that's why I'm always keen to contextualise. But yeah, of course I'm scared of getting something wrong. I think almost every journalist I know is quite scared to be getting something wrong with the way that, you know, social media is now. It's, It's not exactly a comforting thing to think that you could say something stupid and end up trending on Twitter you know I think that's a lot of people's one of their worst nightmares do you think we're too quick to condemn people when they do get stuff wrong do you think we can sometimes be too reactionary on social media I think where more of the danger is is that we're flattening every crime into the same so Mm. calling out Harvey Weinstein is sort of almost the same as calling out an influencer on Instagram who's ripped off someone else's handbag design that I'm finding that flattening in everything and also how binary we are. So this idea that you have to have an opinion on everything, which is so dangerous. Of course you can't have an opinion on everything. I don't understand how we think we can be informed on everything. And so what we're finding is when people don't have an opinion, they, I mean, we truly live in meme culture right now. And I don't just mean that we love looking at memes. I mean, we're memeing what other people are saying, what other people are wearing. Uh, we're becoming very, very tribal. And look, being tribal is inevitable. That's literally the way we lived as cavemen. It's always going to persist that you are drawn to people like you. There is, of course, a really dangerous element of that as well, because you are drawn to similar opinions or drawn to people that reinforce your own worldview. And 
what I find interesting is that we are ostensibly living in a time where we're told that women can be unruly and, you know, we're reclaiming lots of words around um, womanhood and how we don't have to fit in a box anymore. And yet online, the stuff that people are being criticised for is such a distraction so much of the time. It's just a diversion from what's actually really important. And I think that there's a very big conversation to be had on cancel culture that obviously we don't have the time to have now. But yesterday I saw that Jodie Comer, the actress Jodie Comer, was trending on Mm. Twitter. And so I clicked on it and she was trending on Twitter because there was a rumour that she was dating a Republican. And so the hashtags... Jodie Comer is over party and cancel Jodie Comer were trending on Twitter because of a rumour that she might have dated. But also, even if she is dating a Republican, okay, so you wouldn't vote Republican. You wouldn't date a Republican. Fine, great. But what? why are we thinking that we need to cancel the existence of someone or their career because of it? It's absolutely extraordinary. Just walk on. Don't engage with her art if it offends you. And... I actually don't believe that that kind of cancel culture is enforced really anyway, because unless you are economically deprived of doing your job and you are physically denied access to certain areas or physical spaces, then you haven't been cancelled. You know, Taylor Swift wasn't cancelled. She had a really, really rubbish three years where the internet piled on because of Kim Kardashian and Kanye West. But she wasn't cancelled. She brought out a new Mm -hmm. album. You know, she lives in a lovely house with her boyfriend. That's not to say that I don't think that being at the epicenter of that kind of bid for cancellation is not probably utterly terrifying and destabilizing. But I think we're just seeing this absolute crushing together of everything. It's so disheartening. It's not the way, I don't think it's the way to make progress. And also, if we cancel everyone, we're going to have no one left. Can I ask you what you're like as a writer? Do you have to write at particular times a day? Do you have sort of routines that you have to stick to? Or are you not at all ritualistic in that sense? I like to write at a desktop computer in my study. So I would say I'm probably slightly more ritualistic in that I wouldn't be able to go on holiday, for example, and just take a laptop and write a piece while I'm there. I wouldn't feel like I was in the right headspace. Um, although I did go to various cafes with my laptop when writing the book. But in general, I would do very long stints at my computer. Um, I think I'd work in a very different way if I had children because I really enjoy writing and get really immersed when people are sleeping. So when I was on my book deadline, I would quite often not be able to start writing till 3 p.m. And then I'd write from 4 p.m. to 4 a.m., which no is not a good idea if you have insomnia as well. That really kicks things into gear. So I like to get really immersed, but like a lot of people I know, I will dread doing it. I'll think of every reason not to sit down and do it because once you're in the flow, it's great, but getting yourself into the flow is so agonizing. (laughs) What do you tend to do when you're procrastinating? I fiddle with things on shelves. I titivate and I move things around um whole rooms maybe last weekend when I was editing doing it right I moved around my whole study and then I felt satisfied and sat down and worked I tidy I'll do the laundry you know I'll do a spring clean I'll do something physical so that I feel like I'm being busy and therefore have a reason not to be 
writing. And I tend to actually then only go and write because I feel guilty. I'm powered by guilt. But again, I don't think that's that unusual. I'm interested to know, how are you feeling as someone who describes themselves as sensitive, as someone who's written about being anxious before? How are you feeling right now? Pretty scared about it coming out. Yeah, quite terrified. And just trying to be quite pragmatic about it, really. I think it's probably always terrifying birthing a book. And I'm going to be quite resolute on how much I engage with the feedback. I'm, I'm going to try not to go onto the various websites um, where you can read endless things about yourself. I'm, I'm going to try and not lean into that too much. A friend of mine said something that I think was really interesting. She said, it's your job to write the book and to deliver the book. It's not your job to keep on top of whatever everyone says about it. So I think I'm going to try and really embrace that. I, It's not perfect. It won't be for everyone. But I, I do think I did the best job on it I could do. And so I'm trying to kind of be peaceful with, with that, that, you know, there's there's nothing I can do now. It has to, it has to go out in the world. That was the whole point of it. So it needs to just go off and do its thing without me holding it on a lead. And you should be proud of it as well. You should feel proud of it as well as peaceful. Um, Pandora, I'm going to let you go. Uh, Before I do, I have one final question, which I ask everyone, um, (laughs) which is if you could go back and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? It would probably be the same advice I'd give myself now, which would be slow down. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, that's good advice and a terrific note to end on. Pandora, thank you so much for your time. You've been such a joy to speak to. And to everyone listening, how do we know we're doing it right? Essays on Modern Life is out now. So thank you very much for listening to The Sunday Salon. Please do share your thoughts about the episode with me. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Alice Azania, and please do think about leaving a review. So until next week, thank you very much and goodbye.